strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy, inhab the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Branch. I'm part of the team here at Christ City. It's my pleasure to bring you the word of God. It's just a joy. And I guess we're looking out at a crowd of the people whose bosses wouldn't let them off this weekend. Is that right? Yeah, okay. We've got to take a list of all the companies that you guys work for and, you know, warn people. Um, <clears throat> would you pray with me as we jump into the word? Oh, Father, we, we come before you, God, as the people that are needy. Father, we, uh, in, in so many areas of our life, we just face uh, the need and the reminder that, that we need a refuge. Oh Lord, this world is a broken place full of uh, terrifying things, Father, and, and there is refuge from it in you. There's hope uh, of, a, of a new world coming in you. Uh, God, I just ask that you would, you would fill us with hope this morning. You fill us with joy in what your word says and your promises to your people. So we would stand strong in you against the waves, Father, and that we would uh, be secure and steadfast and have hope in Christ. Lord, I ask that you'd help me this morning, that your, uh, your spirit would just guide my words as I try to explain your word, uh, and that you would be opening the hearts of this people to receive it, God, that all of us would be edified by it and grow to be more like Jesus as a result. In his name, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So uh, we do have some good weather today. It's uh, a, a beautiful thing outside, and it's been a nice summer, has it not? Fairly nice summer, we enjoyed it. And it, the nice summer has actually led Heather and I and our little boy Aryan, if you've met him running around, little two-year-old, an embarrassing number of times out to the ocean, to the beach. We don't actually say beach, we say ocean in our house. Little Aryan runs around saying, ocean, ocean, begging to go out there. But we, we go out there, and one of the things that we've enjoyed the most about our trips to the beach as Vancouver noobs who are all excited disproportionately about the ocean being close by is we, we get excited about the, the tidal changes. And I like to make castles with Aryan with his moat sits around the castle and maybe make it just ahead of the tide so that as the waters come up, they, they fill up that, that little uh, moat that I've built. And then Aryan forgets what we're doing and thinks that it's his personal swimming pool and he jumps in and he just kind of swims around in that moat. And, uh, and then I have to rebuild the castle that I've carefully constructed. And then we watch the thing fall apart as the waves come one by one, you know, erode the moat and erode the foundation. And then eventually the whole beautiful, glorious edifice of the castle of Brant falls into the sea. 
So why do I regale you with stories of sandcastles this morning? You know, it's a, maybe a little bit cliche, you might think, but there's a reason for it. The reason is because as I was looking at Psalm 46 this week, I couldn't help but think of all the ways that our lives are inundated by, by waves. And that there are various ways that we've tried, even in Vancouver, even despite all of our projecting that things are always okay in Vancouver, right? Do we do, we do that here sometimes? You pretend the city's a perfect place with no waves. But, but we face waves, right? And, and they come in and they, they wash over us again and again. Maybe they're global uncertainty waves or waves of global uncertainty or waves of societal upheaval. Maybe they're internal waves of intellectual storms or emotional storms within us. Maybe it's just something as simple and ubiquitous as death. These waves wash over us to discourage us. And I'm wondering this morning, have you ever faced any of these things in a way that revealed that that the walls that you built were like that castle that I would build with my son? And the waves would hit it, and the walls would erode, and you're left vulnerable and exposed. Have you been there? You know, if, you, if you've been there, there's an encouragement for you this morning. Because we have this word about God as our fortress in Psalm 46. And in this psalm, we're going to see the way that, that God is a fortress through three stanzas of, of Hebrew poetry in the book of the Psalms. And our outline this morning is actually from each of those three stanzas. First, in verses 1 to 3, we'll see that, that God is our fortress even if this world collapses into itself in chaos. Then second, we'll see in verses four to seven that God is our fortress who promises to to recreate this world in perfection. He's not going to leave it the way that it is. And last, we'll see in verses eight to 11, we'll, we'll see this invitation to worship and to exalt this God because he is our fortress. So again, those three points, if you're just looking for a key word, chaos, Verses 1 to 3. Fortress and chaos, verses 1 to 3. Fortress and new creation, 4 to 7. Fortress worthy of exaltation, in verses 8 to 11. But I want you to notice something here already. Psalm 46, it's not actually about a specific storm in a specific location at one specific time in history. It's bigger than that. It's, it's a cosmic storm. Psalm 46 is about the storm that rages from the very first book of the Bible until the last book of the Bible. Psalm 46 is about God who is a refuge for people who exist in the midst of the conflict that rages between a world of sin and a good God who is bringing order. A good God who promises refuge for his people. So let's look together then at our first point, first at, at chaos in verses 1 to 3. Read verses 1 to 3 with me. I say, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. And I don't, I don't know if you, you notice, but there's a logic to this statement that's important to grasp. Do you see that? There's a statement, just a matter of fact, God is our refuge. And you see that logical connector? Therefore. Therefore, we will not fear. So the reason that the psalmist gives for not fearing 
is that the God of the Bible is his refuge. He hasn't turned to his retirement plan, like maybe we've been wont to do in our lives. He hasn't turned to his relationships. He hasn't turned to a particular moment of isolated peace and human experience in a city. He's looked beyond that. He's looked to God. He's made him his refuge and his confidence is in him. And because God is his fortress, the psalmist has confidence through complete and through utter chaos. Look at that. Though the mountains fall into the sea. And then look at verse 3. The psalmist uses the language of this ocean in turmoil. Says, he says, though its waters roar and foam. And you have to understand something here. This is a Hebrew author from a long time ago. And the Hebrews, though they had a, in that land of Israel, though they have a long coastline, they're not seafarers. I think the technical term that you'd call them is landlubber. And, and for them, because they don't travel, they're not explorers out in the ocean, the sea symbolized chaos and disorder. But also more than that, uh, the sea, if you remember at the very beginning of the Bible, or if you've, you know the, there's a book of Genesis at the very beginning of the Bible, it talks about the way that when God created the world, there was this time when, when his spirit was hovering over the waters. So waters actually are an important symbol throughout scripture of creation. But if you look here, it's not difficult to see in these verses that the imagery isn't of creation, but of something else, isn't it? Not of creation, but perhaps of uncreation, of increasing disorder and chaos. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to see these verses take place in real life? Mountains falling into the sea and shooting water up? Well, let me tell you, you don't have to imagine it. Well, you, I guess you do have to imagine it, but there's a, there's a time within recent history when, I, when, it, when it happened. Uh, if you look up the Latoya Bay um, mega tsunami, I mean, even that word sounds ominous, doesn't it? Not just tsunami, but mega tsunami. But the Lotuya Bay mega tsunami happened in Alaska in 1958. And what happened in 1958 in Alaska is that there was a 7.8 magnitude earthquake and it caused 90 million tons of rock and ice to fall off the mountain, for the mountain literally to fall into the narrow bay. And the, the magnitude of that, that impact was so large that it was heard 80 kilometers away. This is a, this is a major, major event. And not only that, but then it, it caused the waters to roar and to foam and to explode upwards to the height of 1,700 feet. So if you look at the edge of that bay, even today, you can see the scars where all the, all the, the trees around the edge of that bay were wiped out. They're gone. That's three times the height of the Shangri-La building downtown. That's almost as tall as a chief. I mean, that's crazy. But look back at verse 2. We will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Can you imagine, what would it be like to see not just one mountain collapse, but mountains collapse into the ocean? Uh, you, I think for a point of reference, if you've ever seen one of those environmental or eco-disaster movies, they're so popular right now, aren't they? I mean, it's just like, it looks like everything on Netflix is an eco-disaster movie right now. But if you watch one of those, or maybe if you imagine that point in that movie, uh, Inception. I love that movie, Inception, from a, a number of years ago. And there's this moment when they're living in this kind of um, uh, terrible version of, of this falling apart New York City where the waves are just washing through the city and back out. And then Hans Zimmer's track is playing in the background. 
and wah, wah, you know, and the, the sounds of the horns are going, and it's just ominous. It's terrifying. But it's a picture of this, this unmaking, epic, apocalyptic chaos. And what we need to realize is that these verses are an assertion that God is our refuge, even during the most imaginable upending of order in our universe. Even during the unmaking of creation. So I don't know where you are at this morning, but I do hope that you realize that this is more than mere poetic hyperbole. I bring this up because I think that, that these verses sometimes fail to resonate with Vancouverites because we don't really feel like we need God to be our refuge. Is that true? Our memories are short, though. And when the summer is here and it's a pleasant 23 degrees outside, we just forget about winter. We forget about human history. We forget that, that the relative peace that we're experiencing now is actually a blip on the screen in, between episodes of chaos and war and terror. It's widely acknowledged, for example, that the 20th century was the most bloodiest century of them all. And it didn't change, I don't think, after the worries about Y2K subsided and we moved into the 2000s. We still had problems. We still have problems of war and of terrorism. We still have shootings. I don't know if you saw, but even the Danforth shooting in Toronto just recently. And that's something that we feel as Canadians. We have environmental disasters too, don't we? like uh, Fukushima in uh, 2011 and the earthquake and the tsunami that just wrecked that place. What about the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami in Southeast Asia? I mean, it wasn't a death toll. I didn't look it up, but it's something north of 300,000. Just an incredible number. And we have this litany, I think, of of floods and droughts and raging fires. We see the smoke sometimes, but they haven't touched Vancouver. And what about disease? We haven't even talked about that yet. What about death? What about cancer? What about Alzheimer's disease? I don't want to be alarmist, but I don't want us to fall into the trap of thinking that Psalm 46 isn't for us. God has blessed us here in Vancouver with an incredible moment of relative peace and security. Praise him. We're thankful for that. But we can't allow that relative peace and security to become our hope instead of the God who grants refuge. Otherwise, when the waves come... Or the earthquake, right? When the earthquake comes, we'll be left devastated because our security has been placed in the wrong thing the whole time. So it's into this chaos and disorder and suffering of a world that Psalm 46 declares that that God is a refuge to the worst of what could possibly be experienced as human beings. But here's a question. Will it always be this way? we always just be subject to living in the chaos and disorder forever in human history? No, the answer is no. That's not the case. Look with me at our second point this morning. Look at the new creation. God, a refuge in new creation. God guarantees refuge for his people from the chaos that spans from the, the first book, Genesis, the last book, Revelation, and human history, because he's a God who's driving history forward toward his new creation plan of redemption. And in verses 4 to 7, we're going to read about a city that is a representation of that new creation order that God is building. It's a refuge from the chaos that has spanned human history. Look at verses 4 to 7 with me. There is a river whose streams... Wow. 
Thank you, Siri. <laughs> there is a river who streams out of water. <laughs> Just go ahead and laugh. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> look, at, look at verses 4 to 7 to see what God's doing for us as people. Uh, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. So I, I did something weird. I threw a slide in here. Uh, there's a picture that we can turn to. And if you've ever seen this famous picture of this guy in this Brittany lighthouse before with those, those 70-foot waves crashing around from behind the lighthouse and threatening his existence, we need to see that, that here in, uh, in this passage, in verses 4 to 7, we're moving the camera in this psalm from looking at the, the waves and the storm, and we're moving it to look at the refuge and to consider what that refuge is about. So look again at verses 4 to 5. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. So we need to, we need to know what this refuge is, don't we? Like, where is this city? What is this city? Well, certainly this psalm, Psalm 46, was written in the context of ancient Israel. And in that context, Jerusalem was where the, the temple of God was. And that was, that was the city. That was the, the holy city. And there are moments in that history when nations would rage around that city seeking to destroy it and to crush it. For example, um, there's a time in a moment of opposition when a king named Hezekiah was wise. He saw an Assyrian superpower army coming to take the city and he dug a tunnel that's 2,800 years old today that you can still see that brought water into the center of that city to provide uh, respite from thirst for the beleaguered uh, people who were being assailed in that, in that city. And not only was there this, this water that they could drink from, that they were sustained by, that they were kept alive by, but, but God, even like in verse, uh, in verse 5, where it says in this psalm, God will help her when morning dawns, God helped them when morning dawned. And he did it in this incredible way where, where he sent his angel and he destroyed the army that was around the city and crushed it. So on the one hand, there's certainly, I think, some correspondence between what happened in Hezekiah's lifetime and the words of this psalm that we're reading right now. But yet, on the other hand, this psalm, I think, isn't about that time. I think it anticipates a greater Jerusalem and a greater moment of God's preservation of his people. Why do I say that? Well, it's because, on the one hand, we know that, that the ancient Jerusalem of Hezekiah's day was destroyed, wasn't it? It's not with us in the same way that it was then. That doesn't mean that, that the Bible then gave up hope, and it's even the books that were written later than this psalm, they didn't give up hope for a city of refuge. Because even after Jerusalem's destruction, the Bible still speaks, hopefully, of a coming city. A city that that Jerusalem was just a shadow of. An expectation of something greater. Greater than Jerusalem. Greater than Vancouver. Greater than any city in this world. There's this talk and this hope for that city. And I think that's the city that's ultimately in mind in Psalm 46. And again, why do I say that? 
Well, there's something we need to see here. Look at verse 4. Do you see the way that it begins? There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Do you see that? The theme of a river and God's city and his presence in that city, it's a steady theme throughout the tapestry of the storyline of the Bible from the beginning to the end. And this theme is associated time and time again with the eternal peace and the blessing that God promises to bring one day to his people. And for a brief moment in time, for a little while, that that hope for flourishing and for restoration and for the end of chaos was centered on that city, that ancient city, Jerusalem. But what happened to it? It was destroyed. That wasn't the ultimate place God was driving the vision forward to. Because even after Jerusalem fell, a prophet of God named Ezekiel wrote in his book in chapter 47 about a new city and a new temple with a river that flows from the presence of God in that temple from beneath his throne and goes out through that city and over the mountains and down the hills and up mountains and into the Dead Sea even and brings life and flourishing wherever it goes. It's a picture of recreation centered in a city. Through Ezekiel, God promised to make a new and a better Jerusalem. And actually, we need to know that that it's not just Ezekiel in our Bible that has this picture either. The end of our Bibles has this same picture. Look at Revelation 22, verses 1 to 3 with me. This This is how our Bibles end, guys. The hope that they end with. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. This is a picture of comfort and of joy as God's people are brought into relationship and fellowship and eternal love and perfection in his presence for the rest of time. So with all those things in mind, look back at Psalm 46, verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. So when we consider the broad themes of the Bible, I was just trying to really briefly explain to you. Do you think that that river is that little tunnel, 500 meters long, through which a stream came in the day of Hezekiah? Or is it something greater than that? It's something greater than that. Look at the way that Hebrews 12, 22 to 23, talks about this eternal heavenly city. It's talking to Christians that have taken refuge in Jesus and the hope that we have for what God is making. It says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. I'm convinced that Psalm 46 is in our Bibles because it's, it's there to guide us to look forward to this city, to take hope in this new creation that's centered on this city that's coming and ultimately anticipates the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what we're looking at this psalm this morning. And against this eternal city, no evil purpose will succeed. Look at the way the stanza ends in verses 6 to 7. The psalmist writes, The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hopes is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. All God has to do is utter words with his mouth. 
and opposition will cease and the earth will melt and he will create something new. You know, I think that we need to hear these words from the the book of Revelation in our ears and some other words, the words of God saying, behold, I am making all things new. That's the confidence that we see in these verses. But I think that, again, it might be easy for us living in sunshiny Vancouver, right, to deceive ourselves and to think, I don't really see nations raging against God. I don't really see the need to take refuge in this sort of a city. I mean, maybe we've seen some of those cataclysmic, cataclysmic things, but, but where is the opposition? You know, why do I need to take refuge in him from that opposition? You know, this world's actually full of examples for us of nations raging against God still today. For example, I don't know if you know this, but it's estimated that something around 70,000 people are held in captivity in North Korea today because of their faith in Jesus. Heather and I have had the privilege of traveling a little bit. We we thought about doing some missions overseas at one point in time and meeting with good friends of ours for missionaries in the Arab world and also in India. And through those people, I know of stories of men and women who face death because they're Christians, whose families are threatening to kill them because they've converted to Christianity. Or what about, what about things just on more of a global scale? What about injustice? What about war? Is, aren't those examples of people who are living in opposition to God's rule and his reign, raging against his good purposes, wanting to fight him? And they, they work for themselves and they crush those who are weak around them. Or what about here in Vancouver? People celebrating their opposition to God. Celebrating their opposition to his morality. Or what about the fact that, that Canada has a decades-old tradition of defending the right to murder your unborn children? The nations rage today still. And if that's, if that's all the information we had, if all we knew was, was the nations raging, we'd be right, I think, to be terrified, wouldn't we? Yet through all this chaos and sin and raging against God, the hope of these verses is this. Hear this this morning. God is our refuge, and he's preserving his people for his eternal city. And no matter what sort of opposition comes against him, he's going to win. He's going to protect us. He's going to move us forward to that place. His purposes are sure and steadfast. He's making all things new. And this, I think, needs to lead us to our third point this morning exaltation. Because when we read the words about a God who is powerful, whose voice melts the earth, who's able to preserve his people for a heavenly city, what should our response be? It needs to be worship, to praise him, to rejoice in this God and what he's doing. Read verses 8 to 11 with me. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still. Christ City, hear this. This is your God. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. In these verses, the psalmist is zooming out to the full scope of the conflict between God 
and sinful man who's opposed to him. And he invites us to, to worship this God. Come behold him. Come worship him. You want a fortress that you can trust? This God has power beyond measure. And nothing will keep him from accomplishing his good purposes for his people. Look at the declaration in verse 9. Whenever you see the chaos of sin and this brokenness in the world, remember verse 9. When you're discouraged about the opposition, the things that aren't the way they should be, look at verse 9. He makes wars to end, to, sorry, he makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. I think the tragedy of human history is that it's easier to look back at those seasons of disorder and of war than it is to look back at those long periods of peace. There's one author, uh, John Giddings, who even wrote this. He says, It's easier to regard peace as an interval between wars than to regard war as an interval between pieces. But verse 9 says, It won't always be that way. A day is coming of peace when God will destroy evil. Chaos and striving, even death, disease, all these things will be crushed. He's going to burn the chariots next to the sword, next to the diseases, next to death. He's going to be victor victorious over all. In the timeline of human history, we need to know that God will bring everything to his desired end with finality and judgment, with justice and holiness and love and preservation for his people. At the end of, at the end of history, we can kind of reduce this psalm to this. God wins. God wins, period. Take comfort in that this morning. And as we take comfort in that, I think we need to hear verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. But what is being still... What does knowing that God is God actually look like? What does that look like for us this morning? Well, on the one hand, I, I don't think it's the same thing as that old hymn that says, Jesus, I am resting, 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 you know, where we don't do anything. That's not the kind of being still that we're talking about here. We're talking about uh, being still in the knowledge of this sovereign God knows the end from the beginning and will accomplish his purposes. It's a stillness of being quiet and confident in who God is. And those things have implications for our lives today. I want to just close here as we consider three takeaways. So first takeaway, being still and knowing that, that God is a God who is driving human history toward his ultimate purposes. That frees us from the mantra YOLO, right? You only live once. And it frees us from FOMO, the fear of missing out. For example, if we believe that, that Vancouver is all that there is, if my hope for security and for pleasure and for comfort is limited to this time and to this place, then I'm not going to live very well for the future, am I? No, because if I miss out if, I, if my hope for security and pleasure is limited here, and then I miss out to something like a vacation in the summertime, I'm devastated, aren't I? I haven't been able to seize this moment and to rejoice in all the pleasure that I could get for myself in the short span of my life. But that leaves us vulnerable. If you live 
for that, it leaves you vulnerable because when the waves come, when your health is gone, right? When your finances aren't able to help you live uh, to the fullness of the potential that you want to, to enjoy every moment of this life, when that's stripped away from you, you're crushed. You're crushed. Those waves have crushed you. There's nothing else. And and one day, we do need to know that that's going to happen. The storms are going to come. So what are we going to set our hope in? If you've hoped in the things of this world, then when they're taken from you, we have some serious problems on our hands. But, on the other hand, if the God of Psalms 46 is your refuge, you don't need to live under the tyranny of FOMO and YOLO. You don't need to be afraid of loss and sacrifice because your hope isn't set on this moment. Your hope is set on God and the kingdom that he is building. And you'll know throughout all the suffering that comes, and it will come, the sweet comfort of that voice that has loved you, that has created for you a refuge, and that speaks over you, be still and know that I am God. This leads us to our second takeaway. Being still and knowing that God is who he says he is in Psalm 46, it also frees you for mission. Think of this. The reason that Jesus gives in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, for us to go forth in confidence and mission for him and for his church is this. Read along with me. All authority in heaven and on earth, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, to Jesus. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our confidence to enter into Jesus' service is rooted in the knowledge of a sovereign God and a powerful Savior who knows the end from the beginning. It's rooted in the knowledge that Jesus is fully God, fully the God of Psalm 46, who's the God of Matthew 28, the Jesus of Matthew 28, and the Jesus of Revelation 19 riding on the white horse and crushing his enemies. You are secure in him. There is literally nothing that this world can take from you that can affect your eternal happiness and your security if you are in Jesus. And this view of God's sovereignty then will help you to live faithfully into that famous quote, by Jim Elliot, the missionary who was killed for his faith. And he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You can't do that unless you have this kind of hope in the God who is a refuge through the storm and drives all time and history to his desired end. And let those truths move you beyond your idolatry of the moment. And cause you to bend more and more of the fabric of your lives around obedience to Jesus and mission for him and for his glorious name. Let that drive you to be bold in your evangelism with your neighbors, with your friends, with your family. Let it, let it cause you to be gracious and sacrificial with your hospitality. Let it cause you to serve sacrificially his church. So this leads us then to last point, our third takeaway. Being still and knowing that God is God demands a response from us. If this God is who he says he is, 
then you don't actually have the luxury of ignoring him. Either you'll take refuge in him for his eternal city, or you'll be on the outside of that city when his judgment comes. So in light of Psalm 46, maybe the most important question that we can ask ourselves is, how can we take refuge in this God? How can we make sure that we're standing with him inside the walls and not on the outside? How? By accepting Jesus Christ in faith, the one that he has sent us to save us. For us to take refuge in the coming city, we must first take refuge in Jesus. And there's a problem here because we have to take refuge in Jesus. And the psalm shows us why. Because we need to realize that on our own, when we read Psalm 46, we shouldn't see ourselves, I don't think, as, as the people inside the city until we first seen ourselves as those raging on the outside of the city against God. And we rage against God because we want our own rule. We want to live our lives as if we were God. Is that true? Do you fight against God? Do you feel that tension? I feel that tension, right? How often have we had these fights? How often have we seen something in his word where we've said, you know, God, thanks very much, but I'm going to do it my way. I'm not really interested. I don't think that you're right. I think you're wrong. I think my small mind is greater than your eternal mind. You know, I know more than you do. It's foolish, but it's evidence that we rage against him. And if that's us, then a time is coming when he will break us. We will be the enemies that he wipes out. So what do we need to do? We need to fall on our knees and trust that God has sent Jesus to be crushed under the floodwaters and the chaos of God's judgment for us. We need to know that, that there's a place for us to find refuge. Think again of that, of that, uh, that lighthouse. Think of that storm, not just as the chaos in this world because of sin, but of the greater storm that will come when God unmakes all things and recreates all things. When you're caught in that storm, it's terrifying. I don't know if you realize, but that man nearly died. Just a few seconds later, if he'd kept that door open, he would have been, he would have been toast. He would have been crushed. What did he do? He, he took refuge in the lighthouse. He took refuge in the strength that is stronger than his strength that could endure the floodwaters that raged around him. For us, we need to take refuge by being saved in Jesus, by trusting in faith that God's judgment poured out upon Jesus Christ on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem so that anyone who believes in his name might be saved. That, that his punishment would stand for my punishment. That his life and his blessing would stand for my life and my blessing. That I could be saved through him. It's like Noah's Ark, if you've read the story in the Bible. We enter into the Ark, the floodwaters wash around and we're saved through him. We enter into faith in Jesus, the floodwaters of God's wrath rush over him and we're saved and brought to the other side, to the eternal refuge in him forever. That's our joy, that's our peace, that's our hope. And if you haven't done that, I pray that you would. I pray that you would. Man, I hope you realize too that, that God has done this out of his love for us. As we've had a lot of moments of refuge and wrath and, and storms here, but, but we need to realize that this is about a God who's doing these things because he loves his people. It's about God who loved us when we were still sinners and sent Jesus to be our refuge while we were still sinners. Rejoice in him for that. Christ City, I hope, I hope you hear I hope you hear Psalm 46 that you're encouraged to take 
refuge in this God. Who's your refuge this morning? Is it him? Is it the God of Psalm 46? Or is it something else? Whatever conflict you're experiencing right now, whatever, whatever the waves that you see that are threatening to wash over you, run to this God. Run to him in Jesus Christ and be still and know that he is God. Set your hope on what he is doing, what he's promised to do. Trust him. God is a refuge. We will not fear. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we, we come to you uh, thankful for Psalm 46. Uh, Lord, we're thankful for uh, a psalm that, that is just incredible in its scope and, and power and depicts a storm and, and raging, but promises us a refuge. Oh, Father, I, my, prayer, my prayer for myself, for this church, would be that in increasing ways we would be bold to live for you because we are confident of who you are as the God who is our refuge. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.